Hey, everybody. We want to thank you all who have supported the show. And anybody who is interested in supporting the show can check us out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash xchateau, or you can find the link on xchateau.com. We have over 100 episodes, and by becoming a patron, you can get access to 100-plus episodes. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. We're continuing to talk about sustainability. The fourth of seven strands, not pillars anymore, of sustainability and the definition of sustainability, according to Anna Britton, Executive Director of Napa Green is integrated pest management and biodiversity. Anna, can you tell us why this is an important part of sustainability? Yeah, so this gets out there into using nature, working with nature rather than trying to control nature, right? And one of the kind of criticisms the wine industry sometimes gets is that it's a monoculture. And there's all of these benefits to adding more biodiversity into this system. So things like compost in the soil and cover crops, hedgerows along the side that are attracting beneficial insects. These are all things that actually store more carbon. So it's a proactive climate climate action measure storing carbon in the soil, but they also increase water and nutrient retention. They increase the resilience of the vines. And then there's things like bringing in birds, hawks, bluebirds, these things that are eating unwanted insects or eating unwanted rodents and just helping serve the resilience of the business and the quality of the wine while working in partnership with nature. And of course, your guests love to see that as well. We don't need bees and butterflies for winemaking, but guests love love to see those bees and butterflies out there as well. So this is a really fun area of sustainability. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're going to be continuing our series on sustainability and talking about IPM and biodiversity and IPM being integrated pest management. And our guests today are Josh McDaniels and Drew Bledsoe. Josh McDaniels is the CEO and Drew Bledsoe is the founder of Bledsoe Wine Estates, which is Doubleback Winery, Bledsoe Family Winery, Bledsoe McDaniels in Willamette Valley. Can you please give me and Peter a brief overview of your background and of the wineries? And maybe we can start with Drew as the founder. We can start with you to give a brief overview. Yeah, sure. So briefly, I grew up in Walla Walla, wonderful little town. It was a great place to grow up. From there off to Washington State University where I played football. And then I got to play 14 years of NFL quarterback, which was amazing. During that time, started to get into wine and discovered that my hometown, Valley, was producing some of the best wine grapes and some of the best wines in the entire world. So when I was done with the football, Odyssey came back to Walla Walla, started just with Doubleback, just with that at the start, and that has now since grown into three wineries and a fairly substantial business with lots of vineyard holdings and, and a lot of our growth and a lot of the dynamic things that have happened to our in our business have been at the very least led by Josh McDaniels and in some ways conceived of by Josh as well. So uh, with that, I'll throw it to Josh for his uh, his background. I also grew up in Walla Walla. It was uh, Drew and I like to talk about it. it was, you know, such a, a great place to be a kid, you know, and, and grow up in kind of an agricultural community. And I think as you get older, you want to leave that small community as soon as possible. But I got into wine industry really young and got into it in a really backwards way. Kind of an entrepreneur like my dad. So when I was 16, I started my own winery in Walla Walla. And uh, that kind of kept that foothold here. And so I stayed here to go through the Enology and Viticulture program. I worked for the Figgins family at Leonetti. What ended up being 10 years. And uh, that's where Drew and I met. I went down and worked down in Argentina for Paul Hobbs for a little bit back in 2010. 
took some extension classes with uh, Washington State and UC Davis. So that was the quick and quick and dirty version of it. I'm sure we could go into uh, into it more, but I got to meet Drew uh, while I was at Leonetti, and we hit it off. And he gave me uh, gave me the shot, and we've you know formulated a really great relationship over the over a long time now. <laughs> And uh, it's just been a ton of fun. And, you know, we're both very competitive and really enjoy what we're doing. So Awesome. So, Drew, why is sustainability important to you and how do you think about it in the context of your wineries? You know, when you get into the wine business, it's a very, very long term vision, right? This is not something you look at quarterly or even annually. It's something that you view, hopefully, a generational type business. And so when you talk about sustainability, it's a big word to us, but as a blanket statement, we're trying to build something that is sustainable, not only in how we take care of the environment and and what we do, you know, from a a business practices standpoint, but also building a business that is sustainable, hopefully beyond us. When you view it from that standpoint, you know, the the decision-making, you know, becomes different. It's not you know, are you going to hit your quarterly numbers? It's what is this property going to look like in 10 years? What is the culture of our company going to look like in 15, 20 years? And those kinds of things become primary importance. So it's it's a big word to us, but it's a very holistic word that, that covers, you know, everything that we do with our business above and beyond just how we take care of the physical environment. And Josh, as a CEO, how do you think about translating Drew's vision around sustainability into a good business practice for the wineries. Yeah, well, luckily, you know, I think, you know, with any vision, it takes buy-in, right? And luckily, I think, you know, him and I work pretty collaboratively in that regard. And so I didn't have have to have a lot of buy-in to uh, executing that vision. You know, then it filters down, right? You got to get your team engaged. And it's been really interesting. You know, we just launched a wine project down in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And it's uh, kind of starting from ground zero again. And so I've I've seen that buy-in barrier come up again, which has been I, was something I didn't really expect in Willamette either. I thought the culture down there would have been really open to uh, some of these regenerative and organic practices, but it's just been a, another barrier that I'm that I'm experiencing again. Whereas you know in Walla Walla, you know the you know Chris Figgins, my mentor, was the original winemaker for Doubleback, and so a lot of those practices at least the core ones were established in the vineyards at the time. And then I just had to build on that. And so whether it's biodiversity, which we have and and had some of and have just grown it to be even more, or whether it's the people part, which we didn't have any of at the beginning. And then in 2019, launching our own farming team, we can talk about, you know, the practices that we did within, within that aspect also. But you know, as far as execution, it's it's really trying to understand, you know, what are you capable of doing? What are you actually capable of doing? And then prioritizing it in that regard. And, you know, what's going to make the biggest impact and what's the, you know, I hate to say the easiest thing, but what's the most tangible or at least pragmatic thing to accomplish? Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's great to talk about, but if you can't do it, then you're not, you're not really actually accomplishing anything and that doesn't do anyone any good. So I know biodiversity is big for you guys. How does it fit into the broader sustainability picture from your point of view this this whole business has been an education to me and and, and josh and, and you know before him chris you know one of their many hats that they wear is actually educating me and for me it, it's been just really uh, eye-opening and and refreshing and inspiring to see that doing these things in the vineyard that you know aesthetically look really pretty also 
have very direct benefits in our ability to cut down on synthetic and, and fertilizers and cut down on insecticides and pesticides and, and all of those kinds of things. It's it's just been really cool to to see, you know, what these practices turn into, not only from a an aesthetic and natural standpoint, you know, those kind of those feel good uh, moments, but also from a qualitative standpoint to see the benefits we've seen. And Josh, you can go into more depth on on, on those practices. Yeah, it's, as far as biodiversity, you know, the, one of the you know, it's a big word and something you can toss around a lot, sort of like sustainability and something I think, you know, you could use in marketing more than anything. But one of the things that, that I thought about just in kind of the pre-read was, you know, a few years ago, you know, McQueen Vineyard, our original site, it's out on top of this ridge line of fractured basalt. And there's these hillsides of just what used to be dryland farming. So there's nothing out there. And so in the springtime, we get this kind of native uh, purple vetch that grows on the hillsides. I hate to say it because it's really pretty to look at when, you know, all of the, the entire hillside is just bright purple. It's really cool in the spring. But, you know, inevitably being in a, in a desert climate that ends up dying off. And so when the when that vegetation is really, you know, dense and thick and, you know, and tremendously grown, there's a lot of, of mites and whatnot that grow in that and, and thrive in that. And, you know, once that heat kicks off and there's no precipitation, obviously that vetch dies off. And so all of a sudden your, your beautiful lush green vineyard is the only source of food left on the hillside. And so, you know, I remember specifically a few years ago, you know, in, in terms of calculating ROI, I remember specifically a few years ago, the, all those mites just swarmed into our vineyard and it was really dr- drastically negative. You know, they just suck the chlorophyll out of the leaves and all of a sudden you're really struggling to maintain canopy and, and in turn ripen your fruit. And uh, what we ended up doing and what we've done is building these in these pretty large perimeters of native wildflower seed mixes that we plant all along the perimeters of each vineyard block and vineyard property. You know, the, obviously that harbors a, a lot of, you know, beneficial insects. And so ever since then, and, you know, like Drew said, it's really pretty to look at. But ever since then, we have had, we've seen, you know, much less, you know, drastic effects from when that vetch dies off and all those bugs need somewhere to go. You know, they kind of go into the wildflowers, but then also get consumed by the beneficial insects. So, you know, something as, as pragmatic and as tangible as that, you know, made big, you know, obvious qualitative, but also quantitative uh, differences and, imp- and impacts in the cellar and in the wines. And so what have been the key investments and undertakings around biodiversity that you've made for the Bledsoe wine estates? And does it vary by winery uh, in terms of their location? It var- it varies by winery just in the sense that uh, Doubleback and more and more Bledsoe McDaniels are more and more estate grown. So we obviously have the the sense of control there where we can you know make investments. It's harder in some of the projects for Bledsoe Family Winery where we have contracted to talk someone into making an investment like that based on, you know, kind of our own mentalities and, and policies. But one of the things that, that I'm probably most excited that we just did this fall was we, we've been working with what's called the Bee Girl organization down in Oregon. And she travels domestically quite a bit working with regenerative farms and understanding and she does big studies she did a study on our new property down in Willamette on 
you know, the amount of bees and then also the different types of species that you have within the within that farm. We actually, you know, designed our own uh, cover crop seed mix with probably 15 different seeds that's going into it. And we designed it specifically for kind of what we needed within our own properties. And then we planted that this fall. And so, you know, there's a lot of different types of, uh, of clover. I, I pulled it up here. We got, you know, red clover, subterranean clover, there's, you know, alfalfa, there's vetch, there's the lanza clover, there's uh, black oil sunflower, buckwheat, there's phacelia. So there's a lot of different things, whether that being, you know, to, to attract a, a lot of bees and a lot of different species of bees, but also, you know, there's things that are nitrogen fixing. There's good with things with good tap roots that maintain good soil oxygen rates. And so, you know, we're doing a lot of things like that that are, you know, biodiversity, but they also go into a lot of these new regenerative practices that we're looking uh, pretty deeply into. A lot of that is around, one, not spreading soil now that we have phylloxera up here in Washington State. And then two, it's just, you know, Drew and I were down at Harlan a year and a half ago and, and talking to their, their vineyard team about, you know, they're trying to go dry farming, which is crazy to think about Napa. And so Drew and I were talking, well, if they can do it in Napa, why can't we do it in Walla Walla? And so uh, a lot of this is around, you know, maintaining a lot of water in the soil and seeing if we can really get that retention and uh, get our vines to last a little bit longer without water. So there's a lot of investment like that. Hard to quantify the return, but I think, you know, as with most things in wine, I think is at least on the production side and especially on the luxury side of wine, but certainly things that we think are very beneficial and, and will be in the long run. I mean, it's definitely something that we've we've heard from others when we interviewed with Chef Takah from Cristal. He was talking about the, kind of like how do, how do they? They was it's very easy for them to switch their estate vineyards, but then they're they're actually trying to work with the growers to get them to switch over because because the, they're just seeing the the change of quality by taking different practices. And I'm curious because you had mentioned like you you delineate very clearly between estate fruit and purchased fruit, but but in the end of the day, if it's if it does make better quality fruit, it seems like you guys may you know, with your contracts, maybe willing to pay a premium for fruit that followed your practices in terms of trying to get to that sustainability and biodiversity? I I think for sure. Yeah. And and I think, I think that's certainly true, but I think the longer game for Drew and I is, is we've been planting more and more on our own estate sites. And so we'll just start transferring a lot of those contracted blocks into our own estate sites. And we just, you know, the paradigm shift that we saw when we started our own farm team and the quality, I think of our sites is pretty unparalleled. And so I think that, you know, we would rather put the focus in in that direction, but I do think you're right. Yeah. When you mentioned that ROI is hard to quantify a lot of times, and I think especially for biodiversity, it's not really clear for a lot of people how, what the financial return is and how do you think about it? How do you think about ROI in terms of investments you make in biodiversity? You know, again, you know, we're on the luxury end of the spectrum. You know, at that end of the spectrum, you know, it's all about quality. It's all about what what the end product is. So when you talk about direct ROI, it's, I guess, maybe more indirect in terms of continuing to maintain and push for continued growth in the quality of our product. Plus, there also is, you know, from the marketing standpoint, when we, you know, when we, you know, express to people that we're, that we are taking a long-term and very beneficial approach to how we farm and how we take care of our people. And we should talk about that too. But, you know, that does help build that emotional connection that you have to have in the luxury end of the market to a business that's doing things the right way. 
So it's, you know, it's a qualitative ROI, but then there also is that emotional connection that I think that resonates with people when they understand that this business they're supporting with their dollars is using those dollars in a very responsible way. And certainly you can go back and, and you know, pull out your, your spray expenses and, you know, things like that and just run it, you know, against your budget versus actuals and, and really get a pretty good sense start to see some trends hopefully over, over time of, Hey, you know, we made, made these changes and, you know, X vintage and, you know, our, our spray, you know, in spite of inflation, our spray rates are down. So there's certainly some tangibles that, that you can pull out in that regard. And so, you know, quality being one of the keys, have you seen the quality just improve year over year? How long does it take after you implement some of these practices to see that quality rise up and improve? It's been cool for me, you know, we've done now, um, every year we'll do one or two vertical tastings where we'll go back and we usually alternate between even years and odd years. Obviously, some of the uh, some of the early wines are, are showing amazingly well just because they've got some age to them. But, you know, one of the things, and this is, you know, this goes to winemaking in addition to what's happening in the vineyard. But, but what I've noticed personally is that some of these wines, even in their youth, are standing up really nicely against wines that have 10 years of age. One of the things that I remember from, uh, I think, two years ago, Josh, we did the even years. And 2008, which was our second vintage, has always been kind of a standout, you know, for me, for me personally, at least. But when we did that, the 2008 and the 2018 were kind of tied for first, in my mind, in terms of how they were drinking. So I think from that standpoint, we are seeing these practices show up in the bottle qualitatively. But in terms of, you know, how long it takes for those qualitative benefits to show up, I don't know, Josh, maybe you can answer that a little better. Yeah, it's it's hard. And it's it's funny because Drew likes to give me a hard time about it, you know, and, and if you're playing an NFL game, you know, he, he knows immediately if he made a good decision or a bad decision, if, you know, the his, his receiver caught the ball or if the corner intercepted it. So he likes to give me a hard time about that, but it's certainly a challenge. But, you know, and I think it depends on what you're looking at, you know, whether you're looking at, I think, some of these regenerative practices that we're implementing, I think will take longer to, to notice effects. But a lot of that biodiversity, you know, a lot of the plantings that we did, like the perimeter plantings, those were pretty immediate. You know, the next year we saw big changes with, with the inability for those mites to, you know, rush the vineyard. And so I think it just, you know, it's a case-by-case basis on what you're trying to look at, what you're implementing. And then, you know, you know, you see things like all of a sudden we, we know we have phylloxera in one of our vineyards. And so some of those, you know, practices around vine health and, and whatnot that we implemented years ago, we didn't really see an effect then, but all of a sudden we we're seeing effect on something that we didn't know we had because, you know, the loxer is not actually, you know, able, it's, you know, hurting the vine, but if the vine's very healthy, then it's uh, hurting it a lot less. And so there were things that, you know, that were actually unseen that we were, we were, you know, benefiting from. So I just think it's, it's a really a case by case basis and something, you know, at the end of the day, you have a big asset on your balance sheet and whatever you're doing in that regard is beneficial to protecting that asset in the long run. I think it's probably a good investment. I'm curious from like the marketing side, uh, 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 Drew, you had mentioned 
that emotional connection and something that like the consumers want. And the more that you're telling the stories like, Hey, it's coming from this place and, and how this place is taken care of. I haven't always seen that a lot of luxury brands can say what, that their consumers generally want this direction. And in terms of that, or, or maybe it's just, it doesn't have to be forward, but they just assume, I think maybe it's actually more of the consumers just assume that if this is a luxury product, that the, the, the vines were given the, the, you know, the, the best treatment possible. I'm just curious. And what have your findings been in terms of as talking to consumers over the years, have you guys found that that is important to them? You know, I think it does resonate. I, I think, you know, for at, at our end of the, at, and Josh, maybe you can comment on this, on this better. This is more just anecdotal from my standpoint, but I, I think what it does is it, it, is it creates loyalty, maybe more than new customer acquisition, where people that, okay, I, I bought this wine. I really like this wine. Let me learn more about it. And then when they learn more about this wine that they already like, and they understand that the business behind it is treating the environment and their people, you know, properly and, and, and treating both the environment and the, and the people and the world, you know, responsibly. To me, it seems like it's more of a, a loyalty impact than necessarily, you know, new customer acquisition. You know, when people are drinking luxury wine, they want the wine to be great first, right? I mean, that's, you know, okay, I'm going to try the wine. Oh, I really like this wine. Let me find out more about it. And then our, our hope is that then once they try the wine, they like the wine, they validate that piece of it. Then they learn about our business and, and what we do and how we treat everybody and everything that then, you know, they become more loyal to our business. And I think just to build on that, it's really the big piece that we've seen is the people piece. You know, we for a luxury wine brand, I think a consumer expects you to be doing those environmental aspects at this point, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, probably not. But you really, as far as marketing, you got to be doing something that nobody else is doing. And for us, you know, we started this program around our, our vineyard crew, you know, the people that are, that are working on our vineyard crew about five years ago, we started talking about it and it wasn't, it's, I think it's more in vogue now. So I think it's kind of getting a little greenwashed by a lot of people, you know, in, in that aspect, I don't know what the, you know, a similar saying would be, but you know, we, we started doing this because it was the right thing, but it ended up being something that nobody else was doing. You know, it's, we compensate our team very well. We committed to making them the highest, if not the high, one of the highest paid in the Northwest. They have full retirement, full health insurance, and we keep them employed year round where, you know, obviously a lot of farms will lay off their workers and, and whatnot. And so we made that commitment and it was a big part of sustainability that I think nobody else was doing. And so from the marketing aspect, a lot of people gleaned onto that. And I think it was one of the one of the pieces where it was loyalty from our existing club or, or allocation list, but also it was kind of that maybe push over the edge to join the allocation list and, you know, buy a case of double back for a lot of new people. And so, you know, like Drew said, I think at the luxury end of the spectrum, in this market, you know, if you can tug on heartstrings a little bit, I think, you know, people can spend money on wine, but also feel good about it. I think that's a win-win. And we're not afraid to say that because it's true. You know, we're not greenwashing something. We're actually doing it. And it was kind of that unintended benefit that we experienced. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's obviously taking care of your your vineyard workers and having dedicated people year round, it's like a big tenet of regenerative agriculture, which, you know, that term is relatively new in the grand scheme of things. And sounds like you guys were doing it a lot longer before it was, you know, coined as a term. So that's clearly something that is important to sustainability. If you think about like the whole ecosystem of your vineyard and the people who work it to, to the things that you grow on it. 
No, there's no question. You know, it's uh, and for us, you know, it's just been extremely meaningful because now these 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 people that are part of they're they're part of the ecosystem and in some ways maybe you know and a, one of the most important parts of the ecosystem are the people that that care for our vines and they treat our vines like they own them. They they talk about their vineyards, not not the boss's vineyards, not Josh's vineyards. They, they're our vineyards, and they treat them that way. So the, the, the care and attention to detail that the vines and the, the entire ecosystem and our vineyards get from our team is a level higher than what you could ever expect from contracted labor. And that, I do think, shows up ultimately in the bottle. Are there examples of benefits that you've achieved through some of these practices? I mean, I know, Josh, you'd mentioned in the face of inflation, your spray costs have gone down. Uh, maybe we could dive a little bit more into some specifics there. Just like, how does that, like, you know, and you mentioned also the fluxer is maybe going at a slower rate than you would typically expect. Yeah, you know, you obviously we track our expenses pretty closely throughout the growing season. And also, you know, one thing I think, uh, you know, we're, I'm, like, I'm on the topic of their crew now. And so the big one, you know, you hear all this kind of quiet quitting and whatnot across the industry. And, and the, one of the big, you know, cost savings that we've seen is just not having to rehire people. And even even in, in you know, hard labor, like a vineyard crew is, there's still that big sense of, of training and, you know, or, you know, lack of having multiple people that can create a lot of costs and headaches for your, for your business. And so, you know, that I think that sustainability piece that we've invested in has really saved us money in the long road of not having to go through some of those headaches. So, you know, that that would be certainly be an example of that. And then also, you know, really tangibly and, and hopefully, you know, into the future, you know, our, our water costs are not cheap. You know, it's expensive to run water in some of our vineyard sites. And so if we could get to a place where, you know, we're dry farming, you know, let's say McQueen Vineyard. You know, that's saving us thousands of dollars a year directly. And you spread that over, you know, 20 or 30 acres, it starts to add up pretty quickly. So um, I think, you know, between biodiversity and regenerative, I think they go really hand in hand here. We're going to start to, you know, continue to pull away and hopefully widen the gap between uh, revenues and expenses a little bit more. And so as, as you think about going to dry farming, are there actual difference? What, what different practices are you changing to enable that? Yeah, the big one is 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 that cover crop mix that we talked about. And then also we're going to no-till. So we bought a crimper for our, for our vineyards, which is which I'm really excited to start using. It was, I was surprised how hard it was to actually find one. That was eye-opening. And then also, you know, it's kind of funny, you know, phylloxera was this, you know, really large negative for the industry. But, you know, in hindsight, I think it's going to be a big positive because now we can start, you know, utilizing uh, rootstocks that are a little bit more drought tolerant than, you know, what what we had in the past. So, you know, we got a little more, you know, a lot more, you know, tools in the tool belt now. And uh, hopefully we can start implementing, you know, just some really simple things, I think, that can make big differences uh, down the road for us. So what about the cost side of this equation of going to regenerative and having biodiversity like obviously you mentioned the cover crops. I don't know if that's more expensive than what you were doing before or what can you illuminate for us some of the different cost impacts that you've had to make investments in? Yeah, that cover crop mix wasn't, you know, cheap, but it also wasn't a large largely more expensive than, you know, something we would have done in the past. But at the same time, you know, if we're not uh, deal if we're helping, you know, combat weeds 
and we're helping, you know, maybe we're reducing our the passes with tractors and whatnot. Those are direct savings, you know, year, annually rather than, you know, a one-time startup investment. So I think that, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, a lot of the, just kind of the whole philosophy behind regenerative is, is kind of a, in some sense a little bit cost saving, you know, because you're putting less uh, into a site and letting it be a little bit more self-expressive. So you make wine in Washington and Oregon, and I think of those as very different climates uh, between Walla Walla and Willamette Valley. How does biodiversity differ between those two locations and, and, and the difference of disease pressure there? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a, I mean, philosophically, it's not, you know, the same kind of fundamental, you know, ideals are the same. But, you know, and, you know, you stay at our Cooley Vineyard Estate down in Willamette, you know, there's, it's lined with fir trees and, and madrone trees. And, you know, there's wild blackberry bushes everywhere. And just, you know, there's a lot of different species of what actually grows there. And then also, you know, we're actually, we already drive farm in Willamette. So that's a huge, you know, win in itself down there, you know, with, you know, 40 inches of annual precipitation, it's quite a bit easier to do, to do that. And so we can, you know, at the same time, kind of take a lot of those ideals and, and then transfer them into Walla Walla. But then, you know, Walla Walla, you know, it's a desert. And so, you know, at McQueen, we get six or eight inches of annual precipitation. And that's, you know, it's a much bigger challenge to go dry farm that, obviously. So it's it's going to take a lot more time and, and research to get there. But, you know, we're dealing with, you know, sagebrush and, you know, just a lot of desert. And also, I would say Walla Walla is just very diverse. You know, we go from our McQueen vineyard where it's six or eight inches of annual precipitation to our new Schaefer Vineyard, which is up on the foothills of the Blue Mountains, which is about 22 inches of annual precipitation. And so I think, you know, we can implement these, you know, slowly across the valley and then kind of work backwards, you know, see what works and what doesn't work and continue to just improve on that. But certainly they're they're very, you know, different, distinctive. And I think, uh, you know, that's for obvious reasons why, you know, Cabernet grows well in one area and Pinot Noir grows well in the other. So you mentioned a lot of your people practices, the regenerative agriculture. Are there other things that you're doing around sustainability that are core to Bloodsill wineries? And also, how are you thinking about taking the next steps? What are the next steps uh, associated with those practices? You know, one of the things that, that, that we do that's sort of common sense, I guess, is just in how we how we ship. We try to consolidate it rather than and get things across the country, you know, to the East Coast markets, you know, on refrigerated train cars rather than, uh, rather than, you know, flying wine, flying a case of wine is remarkably, first of all, expensive. And second, uh, just not very efficient from a world perspective. We got some solar panels going in on our new building. So we're, we're finally, we're finally, we're, we're a little, we're a little, maybe a little late to the game on the solar piece of it, but we're getting there. I don't know. We're, we're conscientious about, you know, the double back bottle, for example, you know, it's a, it's a, heavy bottle but it's not heavy in the in the grand scheme of things versus some of our competitors you know so we're conscientious about how much things weigh because shipping some extra pounds is is expensive and you know that our packaging has become much more streamlined and and been able to i don't know do a lot of testing to make sure that it still works and bottles don't break and so on but but it's all recyclable packaging and, and we try to be efficient in that way yeah the packaging's been a big one i talked to jason haas maybe almost a year ago, probably. And, you know, we have this uh, one liter uh, red wine that we call the family wine. And it's just a square kind of flip top milk bottle that we use. And the original intent behind that was to be able to come back and refill. And there's been, you know, some issues, some kind of issues with kind of like sanitation and whatnot around being able to do that well. 
And so I've been looking really hard at what Jason did down at Tablas Creek within the, the boxed wine. And I think there's, you know, some good opportunities there for us to, you know, transition some of those, you know, obviously I think it's like, it's like 70 or 80% of the, like your emissions come from your packaging, which is just an unbelievable to think about. So there's big steps to be made there. And then, you know, we make the, just continue to make a commitment to, you know, cork, which is a, a sustainable product started implementing a lot of DM products, which I'm, which I'm pretty happy about. You know, we're just always keeping an open mind around everything that we do. We also, you know, during the pandemic, it was eye-opening for us. Just we had in the past, we were buying some glass from China and we started, you know, making a commitment that, you know, we're no longer going to do that. We're going to buy as close to home as possible and in everything that we do. So that's been a big one for us also. So whether that's, you know, one, working with, you know, reducing your, your greenhouse emissions, you know, globally, or two, also just working with, you know, countries, I think, that have, you know, more closely aligned ideals than, than you know, the U.S. does. So we've made some big changes in that regard that I think will pay pretty big dividends. I'm curious, what do you each see as barriers that are stopping more wineries from adopting sustainability practices? And what do you think they can do to overcome them? You know, I, I think that there's a, uh, and, I'll, and I guess I'll just speak from personal experience. I had a perception that going green was an expense where you were essentially going to pay more in order to do the right thing. You know, Josh and I always say that we would we'd like to believe we would do the right thing just because it's the right thing and we want our moms to be proud of us. But uh, one of the things that's been eye-opening to me, though, is that if you take even a even a just a slightly long-term view of how you do these things, they're actually really good investments from a business standpoint. You can recoup whatever upfront costs you might have to to incur. You can recoup those in, in a you know in a matter of a few years um, if you're if you're really serious about it. And so for me, I think that's probably the message that needs to be shared far and wide is that you know these things are not a, a sacrifice. These things are actually good business practices that will positively affect your bottom line going forward. Yeah. And I'd only just add to that. I remember my first college professor told me, you know, it doesn't matter if you like to make wine, if you can't afford to do it. And I think, you know, that's sustainability in a nutshell and a good, I think most, a lot of people need to get slapped in the face with that. You know, I get asked all all the time, Hey, you know, why don't you, you know, leave double back, help me start a winery. I'm like, yeah, you, I don't think you understand what that means. And, you know, sustainability is, is in the environmental sense or the people sense is, is incredibly important, but sustainability in the financial sense of your business is just as important because if you want to save the world, but you don't have any money or you don't have a, you know, a, a conduit to do so, it doesn't really matter. And so you need to, you know, operate sustainably, you know, within your business. And I think, you know, a lot of kind of fledgling wineries could understand that maybe a little bit better. So that, that'd be my advice. I, I am interested in one quick follow on for both of you. Obviously, in the earlier part of the interview, we talked a little bit about, you know, building something for the next generation, obviously having your names on these wineries, having, you know, major positions. Like I, how important when you think about making these decisions, do you think about like, hey, am I going to hand something over to them? And like, and setting it up for success or, or in, like, how important does that factor into some of these investments and decisions that you're making, to, even if it's not as attributable to, I know exactly what the return on this investment is going to be, but you're doing kind of going back to the mom statement of, you know, I want to, we want to make our moms proud, but you also want to leave something good for your kids. So I got some good advice from one of my business mentors a number of years ago. He said, you don't build a business for your kids. That's the, you don't do that. You build the best business that you can do the right thing over and over and over and over again. 
And then if your kids want to be involved in it at some point, they can come and choose to do that. And that's, and that's how we've approached it. But that doesn't, whether my kids or Josh's kids or, or any of the family ultimately has this business down the road, that doesn't change our approach to building a business that can sustain itself. You know, it's, it's one of the things that's been interesting, I think, for both of us, but maybe even more so for Josh, is, you know, building something that, you know, if I took off for a year and decided I was just going to go live on a boat in the Mediterranean, which I might, Josh, or if Josh, you know, got sick and was gone for a few months, this thing could live, you know, for a while. You know, it's kind of a hard thing to get over because you, you sort of have to obsolete yourself a little bit in doing that and building a culture and building systems and practices that can sustain you know, beyond us, you know, I hope my kids want to get involved someday, but that's not the, that's not the reason for being the reason for continuing to do what we do is to build an entity that has a life of its own that can then exist beyond us. Yeah. And, you know, I had the good fortune of growing up at Leonetti and, you know, that's a, what, 50 year old business now almost. And, you know, Gary and Nancy probably didn't know if, you know, Chris and Amy wanted to take over that business and Amy didn't come back to the company until she was quite a bit older and Chris did. And now, you know, Chris is going through the same thing with his kids. And I've seen so many wineries, you know, businesses go through that and it's extremely challenging and the the kids don't want it. And then, you know, you build a business for your kids and then the kids don't want anything to do with it. And then you're really stuck with this asset that maybe turned into a liability at that point for you. And so you see it all the time. And I think Drew's, you know, spot on with that is, you know, you got to build a business that's sustainable, I think, to itself, to whoever the owner is. And then, you know, you can, uh, you know, filter your decision making processes through that. So I think that's how I think about it when I when, you know, I'm making decisions for the long run. And I think it's probably I think through, you know, the firsthand (laughs) you know, uh, witnessing, it's probably the right thing. So Drew, we probably need to ask something about football. So what do you think is the uh, connection in your mind between sustainability wine and football? Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, you guys get in all this technical wine shit and all of a sudden <laughs> Josh gets to steal the whole show. So I appreciate you throwing me into my uh, briar patch for a second. Now, one of the, one of the cool things that I've discovered, you know, through the inception and growth of this business is that you know, being the quarterback of a football team and being the the owner of a business and guiding a business in a, in a in a lot of ways, they're very very similar jobs and they're very similar endeavors and the same qualities and disciplines that allow you to be successful in one translate directly into the other one. You know, it's it's you know building a great team. You know, I'd I'd have a great team around me when I was playing quarterback. It's learning to put together a great plan and then execute your plan with precision. And then also being able to adapt your plan in the face of adversity. You know, we have a mantra in our business now where we we embrace adversity when it comes. We don't try to create it. You know, we don't go try to screw up on purpose. But every time we're faced with some sort of adversity, you know, it's a chance for us to really evolve and change and grow. And every time we've faced adversity in our business, we've come out the other side better. It's been really gratifying to see that, you know, the same things that allow a football franchise to be successful, you know, allow a business to be successful. It's kind of funny. There's a lot of football cliches that get thrown around in business. And I think sometimes people don't even know they're using football terms, you know, things like, uh, you know, it's all about the blocking and tackling. You got to quarterback this project for me. Hey, we got to get this across the goal line, which I guess that could that could apply to a lot of different sports. But but there are a lot of football terms that get thrown around in business that I think people that don't even know football use these terms and don't know what the inception of those was. So it's been pretty gratifying to see that those things carry over. 
And so we'd like to wrap up each of our episodes on a personal note. And so we're curious on what was the most memorable wine each of you have had uh, over the last year and who did you drink it with? Oh man. Uh, over the last year, I, uh, I know I had a, uh, <laughs> funny thing is I can't remember the wine. It was just a memorable moment. <laughs> I think it was an older, uh, Leonetti, uh, Sangiovese. Uh, I had a night my daughter was born back in March. I had with my, uh, parents and my, and my wife, Kim. So I think that, uh, that topped it for the year for me. That was a one, a big relief that everything went well. And then also my wife wasn't pregnant anymore. So that was, that was fantastic. And the wine was, was really good. I, I'm trying to remember the vintage off the top of my head. I think it was like, oh, five or six. So those old, those old Leonetti's are drinking so great. I had a, an 05 Leo reserve a little while back. Jeez, man, I was, I was just singing. You know, I'm just trying to, I'm just recently, Mar and I had a wine trip down to Vegas. It was actually pretty fun. We did a, a little uh, showdown between it was Washington versus Napa. We fared quite well, which was which was was cool. And because we fared so well, we decided to celebrate that night with a little uh, John Louis Chauve uh, Hermitage. Pretty young. It was a 2018, but he threw it into the canter for us for about an hour. And man, that wine was uh, was just singing. Obviously, then you know Josh and I are great admirers of of, uh, of his wines, but uh, that wine, even as a as a puppy, was uh, was drinking just fantastically. Yeah, those are um, uh, amazing wines, both the Leonetti's and the Shav, of course. He is the man on the hill of Hermitage. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, amazing wines. You'll also you'll also like this. I'm just actually trying to remember looking back through some pictures, you know, wines we've had over this year. We made a trip to uh, Philly to go see a buddy. We had to go do the Philly cheesesteak uh, showdown between Pat's and Gino's. We actually took a bottle of double back Cabernet and we had some double back cab and paper cups while we were eating uh, Gino's and Pat's cheesesteaks. And, and I guess maybe not surprisingly, a great bottle of Washington Cabernet and a Philly cheesesteak go together quite nicely. Yeah, I've, I've done that battle myself, not with the double back, but I've done, <laughs> but uh, yes, definitely uh, it is a red wine friendly, uh, cab friendly pairing for sure. We want to thank you both for sharing everything about Bledsoe Wine Estates and, and what you all are doing for biodiversity up in Walla Walla as well as in Oregon. And thank you for your time and all your knowledge. Thanks for having us on, guys. Really appreciate it and love what you guys are doing, man. Really uh, a huge fan. It's something that's sorely needed in the world and, and the world of wine. So uh, appreciate you guys doing what you're doing. Yeah, thank you, guys. Peter, I bought your uh, book for my team. So hopefully they get some good knowledge from you on that. So awesome. appreciate you guys. Let me know if you have any questions. Don't forget to support the show at xchateau.com or patreon.com slash xchateau. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. cheers.